The movie was fake. The mission was real. We are the SpyFi guys, and this is Argo. Welcome to the SpyFi guys, where we cover spy fact, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Zach. And I'm Christian. And today we are doing the 2012 Best Picture winner, Argo. Didn't also win Best Director, too? I believe so, yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, that director was Ben Affleck, the star Otherwise known of the as Batfleck. As well. Yes. Or former Batfleck. More like Batflex. Uh. Do you notice there's a scene in this movie where he takes his shirt off and he has abs? No, I did not notice that. It's like they need to show him off in every movie. <laughs> I guess it was his choice since he's the director. Mm-hmm. I remember watching this movie at the AFI Silver Spring Theater with Ooh, nice. a girl I was dating at the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I remember really enjoying it. Did you? And then I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then I researched more about it and I'm not sure I like it as much, but I'll save that for our ratings. Interesting. All right. All right. I don't think I saw this in theaters. I didn't end up seeing it until it came out on DVD. I, I don't remember why I didn't see it in theaters. I would want to do it, just didn't get a chance. But since then, I've seen it many times, either with friends or I've seen it at like at a screening for volunteers at the Spy Museum where I saw that. And they've got a great little display on it in the Spy Museum as well. So I guess you like the movie a lot. I enjoy it a lot, but we'll save that for our readings. All right, so shall we jump right in? Yes, let's. Acting under the cover of a Hollywood producer scouting a location for a science fiction film, a CIA agent launches a dangerous operation to rescue six Americans in Tehran during the U.S. hostage crisis in Iran in 1979. That's about correct. It was a little yeah. awkwardly written, but I yeah, guess it's like a long run-on sentence. <laughs> yeah, I guess people on IMDb don't get paid, so <laughs> okay. So the movie begins with retro logos. That's I like that. Movies I like, like to do. I like the old Warner Brothers logo, which I haven't seen in a long time. Didn't they do it in the Joker movie? Or did you not see it? I have not. I've still not seen Joker, so, and Mm -hmm. I refuse. (laughs) Okay, and then they have the historical background, which reminded me of Sergeant Stubby, (laughs) because we have the narration and the animation. Mm -hmm. They explain that U.S. and Great Britain engineered the overthrow of Mossadegh in the 1950s and replaced him with the Shah, who was frankly a brutal dictator but he was the u.s's friend and then when the people of iran overthrew mm-hmm. him khomeini and his islamic radicals took over and won vengeance against the u.s so i freely admit that i don't know as much about iran as i don't do some really other countries either. that begin yeah. with i how many countries <laughs> beginning with i are we going to do on this podcast um well i think all we have left is indonesia have we done something on iraq oh yeah that's true that one as well <laughs> The reason why I bring it up is because I'm a little skeptical that the people of Iran actually overthrew the Shah. Um, I really have nothing to base that suspicion on. From what I know, I I think that is what happened. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So I liked that here, you know, when they're doing this, they have the very comic booky looking animation, which in real life, the storyboards, which we'll later see, guess you know who drew them? I knew in real life it was drawn by Jack Kirby. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to figure out who actually drew the ones who did the animation in the movie because obviously jack kirby is long since passed but would it be yes. someone that we would know who did the animation it's for the movie? gotta be all right i'm not finding anything on it so the animation ends and we see a mob 
maybe it's unfair to call them a mob, but I'll call them anyway, of Iranians outside the U.S. embassy mm-hmm. chanting and banging on security wall. But the people mm-hmm. inside don't seem too concerned. Yeah, I mean, given that they're, and I don't, I, this is based on nothing, but given that they're diplomats in Iran, I assume they'd have to be used to some level of anxiety of, of protests. Well, I think so, they say later that they were there for nine months before the embassy, between the revolution and the embassy being attacked. Hmm. Okay, I'm not sure if that's what the nine months was. I think that was just one of the pairs was only there for nine months. But do you think that because of the events in this movie, U.S. embassy workers and diplomats are now more skittish? Maybe. I mean, certainly the Benghazi attack probably Mm. contributed to that. They start coming over the fence and Mm. then they cut the chains that are locking the fence, which I feel like an embassy should have more security than that. Well, they do. They have that Marine in the watchtower. Ah, He's just not willing to shoot them. Yeah. So we actually get a scene of as they're trying to gather up all the files to get burned. The Marines are arming up and they're getting a speech about don't shoot anyone unless you have to. Well, I thought he said don't shoot at all because if you shoot someone that everyone in the embassy is yeah. going to die. Yeah, that, that's what I meant. I was going to say that if you, you don't want to be the person who starts a war. Yeah, It's an interesting calculation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because in the Benghazi attack, which of course is what jumps to mind when you think about a U.S. embassy being attacked by a mob, mm-hmm. their intentions were to kill everybody inside anyway. So maybe here, if the Marines had fought back, they would have been able to drive the mob away. But how many people would have been killed by them? And we don't, they don't necessarily know the motivations yet. They know that they're angry, but they don't know that they're willing to necessarily kill someone yet. Right. Yeah. So we get a discussion from a bunch of the workers at the embassy who will be known to us later as our six guest house visitors or the house guests. They refer to them as such. Right. Um, and they're arguing, okay, you know, what do we do? Do we wait for the police? Do we wait for the prime minister to send someone? Do, or do we go now? Yeah, this wasn't so clear, but they're not in the embassy. They're in a visa office, which oh. is how they're able to escape. Really? Okay. I did not know that. Yeah, the movie didn't really make that clear, but there's a part where the camera looks at the embassy and then it like mm-hmm. turns and shows uh, another building. And that's supposed okay. to be where they are. All right. Yeah, later on, they say that they're the only building that has access to the street. So didn't really get that. So meanwhile, the people in the embassy argue about what to do. They're like, the police are going to come. And if the police don't come, the military is going to come, by which I presume they mean the Iranian military. Mm -hmm. Yes. Come on. There's no way that these, I don't know what to call them, protesters, activists, Mm -hmm. rioters, call them rioters. There's no way these rioters would have been able to do what they could do without the regime. Yeah. Again, we don't know that much about the politics and what happened during that area, which I I personally just know what's being told to me in the movie. Well, I remember when you read about it, a lot of people, a lot of sources describe it as Iranian students, Hmm. I'm making finger quotation marks around the word students, stormed the American embassy and took hostages. I'm like, really? Is that something students do? Or is there a government organ pushing them on? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so we also get another scene where Marines are told tear gas is to be used as a last resort only. And of course, immediately after that, they fire a bunch of tear gas into the crowd. There's uh, even a part where these two rioters are breaking through a grate mm-hmm. at ground level and a Marine shoots a tear gas canister like right at them. It's Ooh. unclear whether he hits them or not. Yeah, they're breaking into the embassy and upstairs in the embassy... They're destroying all the visa plates. They're trying to shred anything they can. 
and the incinerator, which they were going to use to actually destroy a bunch of the sensitive material, breaks down. So they have to get the shredder to shred everything, which is actually important that they had to shred it rather than burn it. But this is crazy to me because there were plenty of warning signs. The revolution has already happened. So why do they have all these classified documents in their embassy? Because, I don't know, you, you, even though there's a revolution, you still have to maintain anything that you need. And presumably, when they're talking about classified information, it's not necessarily by secrets. It could just be things that they don't want the Iranians to get, like, yeah, like visa plates or stuff like that. Right. That's fine. I just feel like they, since they had so much warning, they couldn't have at least had a shredder like ready to go or something. And as soon as they saw the people running at them, they could have started doing it. Seemingly, the protesters have been there for a while and they haven't gotten this active until this point. So I give them a break on that. All right. I guess I'm Monday morning quarterbacking. <laughs> people in kind of an extreme situation even if this stuff is happening they have to keep the embassy operating otherwise there's no direct american presence in the country so the marine leader mm -hmm. is at the door with his marines and he says i'm going to go out and reason with them mm -hmm. now i say has it been an hour because he says we have to give them an hour to destroy everything well i think he's trying to buy them time it, so it hasn't like been an hour yet been making all the way around yeah well yeah <laughs> Him I don't mind Monday morning quarterbacking with. <laughs> also, in the visa office, there's a bunch of Iranian citizens there applying for visas to America. And so the staff tells them to leave because, you know, if they get caught trying to apply for visas, they'll be executed or whatnot. Right. Because anything involving America is super toxic and could get you into trouble. Speaking of people getting angry, one of the people who storms the embassy finds a, a portrait of Khomeini with a bunch of darts in it, of course, which sets them off. Right, which I think is so hypocritical. So look, I understand oh, the boy. opening, the Iranians are playing grievances against the U.S. Let me, let me finish. <laughs> but this one, because we just saw all these pictures of like the Statue of Liberty with like a skull for a face, and Carter is like a piece of poop, surrounded by Stars of David, by the way. Ooh. So give me a break. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just saying that's what's, that's what's said. I'm not, right or wrong, I'm not saying, but... It is, I agree, not very professional for someone in an embassy to be doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so people in the visa office escape to the street, and the hostages who are in the embassy are blindfolded and taken and taken as hostages. Right. And then we go to the State Department. Okay. In Washington, D.C., the U.S. State Department, to clarify. This is where we get the info data dump. All right, you know, that six people from the visa office have, are Americans from, have escaped. They're staying in the Canadian ambassador's residence. Apparently, there were three CIA agents in the embassy. I like, it was interesting to me in this. They never say CIA, well, not never, but in the actual government, they always say CIA rather than CIA. Do you think they meant CIA? I assume as much. You don't because, think it meant CI as in counter intel? Why not? Because, well, maybe it, because later on in the film, when Jack calls the chief of staff, he says, hey, it's Jack from CI. So, mm -hmm. And they keep saying, see, uh, everyone outside the agency or outside the government called, says CIA, but inside they said CI. So I don't know. But I just thought that was interesting. But apparently there were three agents in the embassy who mm -hmm. had no idea this was going to happen. So it was failure on their part. Yeah, the dad from American Dreams, which is the show that nobody remembers, says, call it something other than intelligence that you guys didn't see this revolution coming. 
Speaking of intelligence failures, as Parmanu mm-hmm. mentioned, but anyway, so the State Department says the six are ultimately not the priority because we have to mm-hmm. worry about the people in the embassy. So they decide to leave them where they are. Right, for 69 days. Mm-hmm. And that's where we meet our hero, Tony Mendez, played by Ben Affleck. Yeah, so we get a bunch of like mo- a montage of different like yellow ribbons, various messages for, you know, supporting the hostages or, you know, praying for the hostages. Mm-hmm. And then we get a shot of CIA headquarters where Tony Mendez is in a meeting and we get his backstory that he's an exfiltration expert, but he's being told to stand down and he is going to just basically work the desk for a while. And then we go to Old Tools Bar and Grill where they're having a retirement party. Got my attention because they like, they don't say that's a retirement party for CIA, but they almost practically say it. Mm-hmm. You, and it doesn't look like they bought out the bar. It, feel, it feels to me like there's probably other patrons in the bar. So like, really, what are you doing? Hey, they probably want to go to a bar after work just like everybody else. Yeah, but don't talk about, don't have a retirement party there when other people might be hearing that you're having a retirement party for the CIA. And uh-uh, no. no. That's, 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 I think we've talked about this before. It's one of my pet peeves about like talking about classified in, intel or classified things just in a regular setting, like a restaurant or a bar. And movies always do it. They, like, can't seem to help themselves. Mm-hmm. Jack O'Donnell, played by Brian Cranston, who shows up late to the party. Tony, we find out, has been having marital issues. And then mm-hmm. they have, as they're, like, you know, giving a toast to the guy who's retiring, they have a toast to the 50 men and women who can't come home, which I assume is all the people honored on that memorial wall. Okay. Oh, yeah, did you like that? We talked about that in Patriot Games. Mm-hmm. How now, every time they go to the CIA, you have to see the outside and the seal and the wall. Mm-hmm. You can't just have one of them. So mm-hmm. we see Tony's apartment with, it looks like a bachelor pad. There's Chinese food containers. And he wakes up still in his suit. Yep. And he gets a call. So he drives to CIA and we get the outside. We get the seal. We get the stars, which tells us that it was actually filmed. At least this part was actually filmed at Langley. In the lobby, at least. So Tony gets briefed on guest house visitors so they basically need a plan to get them out so someone at the embassy apparently was very unwisely keeping this like a photo album or a photo book of everyone who worked there i called it a facebook (laughs) but you know what this serves for the movie is it's a time lock Mm -hmm. which is in screenwriting i don't know why they can't just call it a time limit but they call it time lock so the idea is if they wait too long which one of their plans involves waiting until winter then they'll get discovered. And right. also, Cranston says the Canadians want them out too. So there's actually multiple factors pushing the house guests out of the house. The mug book was shredded, but they're using sweatshop workers to reassemble it. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently State Department is running point on this, and CIA is only there to advise. Tony makes the point of, since when does State Department do exfiltrations? They do now. Well, it is there are people involved, right? So yeah, and that's, I, guess, I guess that makes sense, yeah. but come on, they don't have the background or the knowledge base to actually pull it off. As we see in this discussion scene where they're in a boardroom and they're like, okay, we can bicycle 400 miles or something, we uh, can pretend to be journalists, we can pretend to help starving kids, inspecting mm, crops, all of these ideas, and they're all pretty terrible. bad. Yeah. <laughs> Here's when we also get a rundown of who all the six guest house visitors are. So we have Mark and Cora Lajek, who are a consular officer and assistant. Henry Lee Schatz, who's an agriculture attache. 
We got Joe and Kathy Stafford. We don't actually find out what they do, but I assume just another consular officer and assistant. And then we have Bob Anders, who's yes. the consular officer. And you actually tried to keep track of who was who? Kind of. I mean, like, shots is recognizable because he's got sort of the shaggy haircut, the mustache, and the sunglasses or glasses. Right. So he's easy to keep track of. It's the, like, two couples that I could sometimes couldn't keep track of which one was which. Well, I can keep them all track, but it's like Permani where I don't know their names. I'm just like the guy with the glasses, the girl with the glasses, the hot girl, the guy with the shorter hair, the old guy, the guy with the mustache. Oh, I forgot about that. We really, well, I think we tried to define them by their position, too. Yes, but this one is harder because they don't have clear roles, at least not right away. Okay, so Tony drives home across the Arlington Bridge, and it's weird mm. to see the Arlington Bridge not with construction on it. Right, yeah. They've been working <laughs> on it for forever. Uh. We get a brief scene where the house guests have to hide in a crawl space like Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. Also, they're just sort of getting agitated, and they're also having discussion on what they think the U.S. should do. Should they return the Shah? Mm-hmm. Who, we kind of sort of skipped over the fact that the U.S. has the shot and that he has, what, cancer? Was it cancer? I don't remember. Correct. Yeah. And so even if we wanted to give him back, can't really. There's a lot of reasons why the U.S. can't give him back. Yeah. Including not negotiating with terrorists. Right. As they hear a helicopter fly overhead, and so the visitors hide in the crawl space. Yep. And then we have a scene of Tony at his house calling his son, and they're watching Battlestar Galactica together, which he confuses for Star Wars. Wait, I thought they were watching Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Mm-mm. This is Battlestar Galactica, because they talk about Cylons and... Yep. Oh, okay. He's living separated from his family, which mm-hmm. we sort of hinted at. But this is when he gets the idea to do a science fiction movie, because it takes place in the desert. Mm-hmm. He goes back to the meeting, he tells them their idea, they're going to be a Canadian film crew, and that they have contacts within Hollywood already. John Chambers, who did does special effects makeup and worked on the Planet of the Apes, he's done contract work for them in the past. So I assume that means he's helped them with disguises. Yeah, and he's able to be trusted, and you can include him as part of the mission. Mm-hmm. So next we go back to the Canadian residence. Uh, Bob, the senior consular guy, went outside because he was feeling stuck. He felt like he was being quarantined, which... Once that's happened, I like start to relate to the more like, oh, yeah, being stuck in your house, but wanting to go outside just to have a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that time of recording, as we keep saying, we're still inside. But unlike us, they don't have the internet. It's true. <laughs> they have just whatever books that the Canadian ambassador may have. Yep, an Iranian TV. TV. Yeah. But Iranian TV after the revolution, so you can't even dress mm-hmm. the way you want to dress. They point out that the Iranians are eventually going to figure out that they're missing six mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So another time lock. Mm-hmm. Or kind of the same time lock. Well, yeah, but another factor on it yeah. that they're eventually going to get caught. Mendez flies to Hollywood to mm-hmm. meet Chambers, and he sees the Hollywood sign that's like falling apart. Yeah, at a certain point of time, I'm trying to remember what happened to the Hollywood sign, like why it was demolished at that point. I know it used to be the Hollywood land sign until Timothy Dalton crashed into it wearing a rocket pack. And that's why it's only <laughs> Hollywood. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> hmm. But I would be curious to know what's the deal with the sign that you could find it. It's just deteriorated, like, because it was supposed to be temporary. It was the sign actually, itself? Yes, it was just there to advertise a new housing development known as Hollywoodland. 
I did not know that. Yeah. It was only just supposed to last for a year and a half, actually. Well, that makes sense then. It was probably put up in like the 50s or something, right? Uh, no, 1923. Even longer then. Mm-hmm. In 1978, this started to refurbish it. And when this movie takes place in 1980, they're probably thinking, okay, this has gone far enough. We need to get to work. <laughs> yeah. All right. So he goes and meets Chambers, who's played by John Goodman, who's great as always. Yeah. And he's on the film set with the like space minotaur, which I thought was hilarious. Yes. So that's the problem with doing a spy show is that mm-hmm. we don't get to watch these old sci-fi movies that just look so corny. I mean, we have enough old spy movies that also look corny. That's true. So I guess you have to appreciate what you have. Mm-hmm. So he pitches to Chambers and he explains the whole situation again, which is actually mm-hmm. kind of a criticism I have of this movie is that they keep explaining what's going on to different mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Chambers eventually agrees, but he says, you want me to produce a fake movie for free? When they say that, the context is not you. He wants you to do it. They need to find a producer because he's not the producer. He's just working on the film. Oh, sorry. so they need to find a, fa- a producer who can be trusted with the intelligence aspect of it and not talk, who has mm-hmm. credibility in the agency, isn't doing anything and will do it for free. But the doing it for free, I think, is interesting because mm-hmm. they're not actually making a movie. Now, mm-hmm. I understand that what they do costs money yeah. and time and mm-hmm. effort, but it's mm-hmm. not the same thing as producing an entire movie for free. I mean, he still had to do work and he still had to have his name on it. Like they had, and we'll get to it later, they had to do casting costumes for all, everything, had to set up that script reading that we'll see later. So he had to actually do work on it. So it is time and, and time is money. Fair enough. Going back to the Space Minotaur. Right. Because <laughs> there's a great line here when they first meet and Tony asks Chambers what he's working on. He's like, well, audiences will hate it. It was a tar- target audience. People's eyes. Yeah, John Goodman has a lot of really good lines, which is too bad he's not in the movie more. I also like when he says, if he could act, he wouldn't be playing the Minotaur, <laughs> which is yeah. true. So they go to this restaurant, which has this big display of like celebrity photos, mm-hmm. which I kn- is definitely a thing in L.A. Like restaurants love to show off who's been in their rest and like which celebrity has been in their restaurant. Right. And we'll have like photos of all of them. Which is interesting because part of LA culture is not reacting to celebrities when you see one. They also no. do it in New York, though. Mm. If you go to a New York restaurant that's been around for a long time, you'll probably see stuff like that. Yeah, so they start assigning uh, roles to the different guest house visitors. You know, one of them has an MA in English, so they make her the scriptwriter, Bob, the director, because he's the most senior. Right? He can be a leader. Even if he doesn't know anything about movies. Yeah. What they need is a script and a producer. Because if they're going to do this, they need to go all the way so that you really can prove it if someone calls you on it. That's right. So they get their producer, who is played by Alan Arkin, with no hair. (laughs) Which takes him getting used to. So he plays Lester Siegel. And so, again, they tell him the the whole plan. Like Like you said, yeah, they do that a bunch of times. But, again, it's for the audience who wasn't paying attention. Right. But I do like, once they're finished explaining, he has a speech where he recaps the plan. I don't Mm. remember the whole thing because it's long, but it did remind me of the Red Sea Diving Resort. (laughs) And this movie, in fact, is very similar to the Red Sea Diving Resort in a lot of ways. Huh, I never thought about that, but you're right. Mm -hmm. Especially with a former superhero or future superhero 
with a beard playing the person who's going to take them all out of there. Past and future superhero. That's mm -hmm. what I'm at. <laughs> okay, so you got six people hiding in a town of, what, four million, all of whom chant death to America all the live long day. You want to set up a movie in a week. You want to lie to Hollywood, a town where everyone lies for a living. Then you're going to sneak 007 here into a country that wants CIA blood on their breakfast cereal, and you're going to walk the Brady Bench out of the most watched city in the world. That's about right. Mm -hmm. That's like could be taken right out of the Red Sea Diving Resort. <laughs> so they're looking at a bunch of scripts. They're considering a bunch of different options. Mendez mm -hmm. finds Argo. He's like, it's perfect because it's in a desert kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And it's science fiction, which people don't really understand. And I want to know, like, what are these other scripts that they're looking at? Like, did any of them actually become movies? Or mm -hmm. were they all, like, just terrible? Well, I have a podcast recommendation for you if you're interested in learning oh. about that. I haven't listened to it very much myself. There's one called The Blacklist. I've heard of it. It's actors and comedians, people who you would know, reading mm -hmm. scripts or parts of scripts that have been floating around Hollywood but have never quite been made into a movie, mm -hmm. usually because they're not good, but sometimes just because they didn't get a chance. Ah, interesting. That is, yeah, I, I would be interested to listen to that, but... So there is one problem with the Argo script, however. Yes. It's a turnaround. Wait, it's a turnaround? What does that mean? So a turnaround or a turnaround deal is an arrangement in the film industry whereby the production costs of a project, which one studio has developed, are declared a loss on the company's tax returns, thereby preventing the studio from exploiting the property any further. The rights can then be sold to a studio in exchange for the cost of development plus interest. So hmm. someone was already trying to develop it. It didn't work out. And so they declared a loss. And so another company can now purchase the rights. Right. So in other words, they don't own it. They need to buy it from mm -hmm. someone else. Max Klein, producer. Played by David Krumholtz. Mm -hmm. No, and that's not David Krumholtz. Who is it then? It is another guy who... Uh, no, it's not David Okay, he definitely looks familiar. So it might not be David Krumholtz, but I recognize him. Oh, wait, you're right. It's not. I'm going to edit that out. No, I'm not going to edit it out. <laughs> but he has been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he has the like voice. that same sort of character. He's the voice of Bing Bong in, uh, what's the, in, what's the Inside movie? Out. Inside Out, yes. You uh, don't have to look him up. It's just yeah. that guy. Take my word for it. When you see <laughs> him, you'll recognize him. He's also in Scrubs in like a bunch of episodes too. But yes, it's that guy, not David mm -hmm. Krumholtz. <laughs> right. Glad we established that. He's asking for like, what, 40000 for the script? and. Lester gives him a really good story about insider baseball Hollywood stuff, which I was like fascinated by. Mm -hmm. The script is supposed to be a part of a slate that's going to anchor MGM's new lineup with Warren Beatty. Lester says, that's funny because I, I talked to my good friend Warren Beatty, who says, who's doing Zulu Empire for you. And apparently the Zulus are, want to unionize. They may be cannibals, but they want health and dental. And right. if that's not happening, that tanks your entire thing. So I know that this is all a load of bull. And you're going to give me this script for $10,000. So it makes me wonder whether, what's his name again? The guy he's talking to? Uh, Max. Max Klein. It makes me wonder whether Max Klein's thing wasn't true either about MGM's big new plans. Whether he oh. was just blowing smoke in order to get them to pay he was. That's, that's what it is. He was just trying to get more money out of them. Everyone lies for a living, just exactly. like you said. It's, it's, yeah, so... And after, so he they get they get it for ten thousand. And afterwards, Tony asks him, "You really know Warren Beatty?" I said, "Yeah, took a piss next to him during the Golden Globes." Taco, and then they go and get tacos. 
<laughs> yeah. And then this, I love this. So where they are is on the Warner Brothers studio lot. And I've mm -hmm. done the Warner Brothers studio lot tour. So I've been past this. Like the building that they're sitting in front of has been a courtroom in Supergirl. It's been in a bunch of other movies and TV shows. So each time I see that, I was like, oh, I know exactly where they're filming. Nice. It's so funny how that happens. So they're yeah. talking while they're sitting on the steps. Mm -hmm. Talking Mendez about families says, and kids. Yeah. yeah, Mendez and his wife are taking time off. Mm -hmm. And then we see a bunch of Cylons from Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> or extras uh, dressed as them, Cylon mm -hmm. Centurions. Tony calls his son, and they talk about movies for a little bit, what they're watching. Mm -hmm. And we also have a scene that was a little bit earlier on where Sahar, who's the housekeeper at the Canadian residence, mm -hmm. talks to the ambassador's wife and saying, your guests, your friends, they've been here so long and they never go outside. The ambassador's wife speaks to the ambassador, who is played by... Victor Garber. Victor Garber. Sahar knows. Victor Garber always plays like a dad who's worried a lot. <laughs> yes. So meanwhile, Tony gets a call from Brian Cranston. From Jack. And they have very cliche yeah. dialogue here. Mendez says, I need a week. And Jack says, you don't have it. I appreciated that. Yeah. Well, the reason they don't have more time is because the Iranian security is cracking down. Again, going on that timeline of they're going to realize that they're missing people soon. It's a good thing they didn't go with the bicycle plan. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Alan Arkin's like, we're going to have a press event. Everyone's going to be there. We'll have actors in these crazy 70s sci-fi costumes reading the whole script, which I guess gives away the entire story. Yeah, back in the day where there's no internet. So unless you're reading the trades and uh, or you're at this event, mm -hmm. it's not going to matter. No one's going to really know. The reason they have this event is because what they need to do is really sell that this is a real film production. Mm -hmm. And Chambers has, has the line of, you know, if you want to sell a lie, get the press to sell it for you. So if they have this big event and all the press and all the trades report on it, then it's legitimate. Unfortunately, they have the connections in order to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's what a producer like Lester's there for. Mm -hmm. So we get the press event. We get to see all of these costumes, all these attractive women <laughs> in these revealing, ridiculous costumes. Yeah, it's 70s sci-fi. A journalist asks Alan Arkin what Argo means. And he's like, is it a reference to Argonauts? Yeah. But I think he gets it wrong. So the Argo is the name of the ship, and the Argonauts are the name of the people. He gets it wrong because Lester really doesn't know. I don't, I don't know if Lester's actually read the script. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he hasn't. So he's like, it stands for, yeah, I don't know, whatever you want. You know what it stands for? Argo, fuck yourself. Which, of course, is the big takeaway, the big running joke throughout the movie. They keep saying it. You want to censor that? We haven't censored anything so far. We didn't censor tits last time. <laughs> All right. We already have the explicit label, so might as well just keep going. So they do their reading. The dialogue's so corny. There's even this corny C-3PO ripoff robot mm -hmm. interspersed with the house guests listening to the radio or watching TV and being worried mm -hmm. while the Iranians do a fake execution of Jeez. some of the hostages. But I don't yeah. know if that actually happened. I don't know. And I didn't look it up. Mm -hmm. Very professional. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, also, just to, on a lighter note, I noticed that one of the costumes was definitely a Wookiee dyed blue. Yeah, I think someone even says that this movie is a Star Wars ripoff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not surprised. After the reading, Tony calls his wife, his kids playing with some Star Wars, some classic Kenner Star Wars toys. Yes. Including the Luke Skywalker where the lightsaber comes out of his arm. What? <laughs> 
You've not seen that? That's the, like the, no. the first wave of Star Wars figures. Like the lightsabers I... came out, like would extend out of the arm so that they could, mm. you know, appear and disappear. And they had the classic vinyl like robes instead of a cape. Oh, nice. So this is 1980, so Star Wars is really popular, mm -hmm. and the Star Wars ripoffs are coming fast and furious. Mm -hmm. I think Argo, um, of course, is going to be one of them. <laughs> but yeah, so he talks to his wife, and his wife invites him to his kid's birthday party, which, well, knowing how movies go, he's not going to be able to make it because he'll be off on a mission. Yes. And then by the end of the movie, he'll be throwing his cell phone into the sea and say, damn it, I'm going to spend more time with my kids. <laughs> so they go to meet Jack. Mm -hmm. I keep wanting to call him Brian Cranston, but yeah. I'm trying to step up to your level and actually call them by their characters' <laughs> names. He is remaining skeptical about the plan, even though it's a little far to go. And there's a quote here where I like where he says, I think it's Tony says, They'd shoot in Stalingrad with Pol Pot directing if it sold tickets. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which reminded me of Ricky Gervais when he said a lot of things to Hollywood during uh, one of these yeah. uh, award ceremonies. And he says, if ISIS had a streaming service, you would be calling your agents. Uh, but of course, it's always funny to see a Hollywood movie bashing Hollywood because you just know it's so insincere. <laughs> The main thing that happened out of that conversation is that Tony is told that the plan is off. Right. And so Lester and Chambers and Tony all have a drink. They decide they're going to keep the uh, film production office open and for the time being. The so Lester is talking about how he's had productions where he had to get past whoever's trying to block him. And Tony asks, how did you do that? Let me find out the way you do that is you go over their heads and, and talk to someone else. So Tony set up a meeting. He went over the, he says the DOP, which I assume stands for Director of Operations. I would assume that too. Yeah. Went over his head and used uh, Jack's name. So they get a meeting with the Secretary of State. Jack compares the meeting to being talking to Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. Right. They're very skeptical too. Mm -hmm. they, again, we get them saying the whole plan. <laughs> yeah, just in case the audience hasn't figured it out yet. Yeah, they're skeptical. They said, what up to the bicycle idea? And they said, they're all bad ideas. And this is our best bad idea. Mm -hmm. I guess they agree to the idea. Yeah, the United States government has just sanctioned your science fiction movie. Mm -hmm. Cranston drives Tony to the airport. To Dulles Airport. Ugh, which makes, <laughs> makes sense because it's international. So yeah, it makes total sense. But, and it makes sense he would need to be driven there, though. Can you imagine him getting there on the metro? <laughs> what metro at this time? There would there's an, uh, anything that goes out that far in the eighties, right? Just make his life even that much more depressing. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> well yeah. So he also takes off his wedding ring as he's going. His cover identity is not married. Yeah, and he gets this speech of if you're detained, the agency won't claim you. And he makes a joke about, I should have brought some books so I could read in prison. And, and uh, just like, what? They'd take your books. No, Jack says, no, they'd kill you long before you got to prison. Oh, yeah, that's way better. <laughs> he does say that. So meanwhile, back in Tehran, Kathy's husband regrets not leaving earlier. Mm. She's like, she wanted me to leave. And I said, no, because I wanted to look like a big, tough guy. Yeah. Now we're going to die here outside. An Iranian guy is killed by IRGC people. Yeah. And so also Tony calls, I guess we never said what the name of it. So the, the name of their fake production company is Studio Six. Do you think it's called that because they have six people they're trying to get out? Probably. I actually never thought about that. It didn't occur to me until I was watching it just now. <laughs> 
I didn't think they'd be that, like, clever, you know? Eh. So Tony called Studio Six to tell them that they got the green light to go ahead. And mm -hmm. also, well, he missed his son's birthday party. Right. So he tries to call the house, but of course they're not there. They're the bowling alley. So he sends a postcard to his kid. And he gets on the British Airways flight to Istanbul, where he meets a British contact who I'm not sure who they're supposed to be. If they're just some contact, are they MI6? I don't know. Well, doesn't he say something about our operations of getting our friend out? So I think he's All involved right. in some way. But yeah, so it gives him the details on how things work now. You have to have mm -hmm. a, this customs form that you fill out when you arrive. Carbon paper, they have one copy, you keep one copy. Yes. And so it can verify that you actually came in when you said you came in. And great system. Them. It's a great system. What could go wrong? <laughs> And he also says that when you land, you should go to the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. Yep. Register and say that you're doing a film shoot or film scouting, not necessarily shoot, but yeah. So he picks up his visa in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. That's why he's there, but also so he can't fly directly from the U.S. to mm -hmm. Iran. Right. He flies to Iran. They take his alcohol away when they hit airspace because Iran's a dry country. Mm-hmm. He checks in and he steals. Well, I guess it's not stealing if they're just giving him away, but he takes a bunch of those the and yellow yeah. slips. And as he's going through customs, someone like in the up not line next to him is arrested. Mm -hmm. And it adds to the tension of the scene. Well, that's something they keep doing through the movie. Although it's uncomfortable to watch the hostages in the embassy being mistreated, mm -hmm. it does help to remind you of the stakes. Yeah. I don't personally feel like I needed to be reminded of the stakes, but there you go. But for someone who has no idea about this whole scenario at all, mm -hmm. especially if it's the first time for you watching it, then yeah, it would help. But us having known about the events behind the film, yeah, we don't necessarily need to be reminded. So Tony goes through town. We get a lot of close-ups of Van Everest Iranian people. He sees a KFC. Mm -hmm. He sees a guy being hanged from a crane. Eef. And so he goes to the uh, the Ministry of Culture. And he mm -hmm. meets with one of the aides, tells them they want to film at the bazaar, the palace, all these different cultural sites, and gives them a copy of the script. The culture guy gives him a look. Do you feel like the culture guy was giving him a bit of a hard time? Yeah, probably. I mean, because... What he says is that you come to us at a complicated time. Before this, 40% of the theaters were showing pornography. They're there to try to clean that up, basically. It does seem interesting that people would go and film in a country undergoing a revolution. Back to what you said. What I said about what? The line that you know they'd film in, what is it? Stalingrad, right. Yeah. But also, I can't think they're like, oh man, all this political instability, that means it'll be cheap to film there. Always mm -hmm. thinking. And it reminded me again of the Red Sea Diving Resort where you had Japanese and German tourists going into cannibal land just right. to go swimming. <laughs> so I guess people make interesting decisions. And finally, we get Tony meeting with the Canadian ambassador. And so as they're driving back to the residence, he gives them the passport. He says that the guest house visitors will get, you know, a day or two to prep their covers and then we'll fly out. Right. And he also tells Tony that Sahar might know something's up. Yep. Tony pitches the plan to the six, which is what I like to call them. And they're mm -hmm. skeptical. My note is skeptical six. <laughs> but they uh, say the Canadians are leaving too. So there's yet another time lock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, so you better learn your cover IDs quick. And during that scene, you get a good question about, they ask him what the odds are that they're good. Like, what's, the, what's the number value of good? 30%? So Tony gives them all their cover identities. He says, you know, you've got to memorize 
all the details and add to them. Get to know these identities so much that you dream like them, which I thought was, that was interesting. It, this scene scared me. Because I was like in their position, I don't think I'd be able to handle the pressure. I'm not good at memorizing stuff. That's why I write everything down. Well, you'd be a terrible spy because the first thing they do is take away your notebook. I think we've established that, though. <laughs> but yeah, what actually reminded me of is not in the current spy museum, but in the old spy museum. They had, well, current spy museum has this undercover mission thing where you get a new identity and you're given tasks to do. But the mm-hmm. old one, it's a lot, a lot harder because you just have details that are on like a thing on the wall as opposed to on a screen that you, you can memorize them that way. And mm-hmm. so you have to pick out one, and then later on you get tested on them. They're like two different parts of the museum. They also threw in other details that you had to just sort of make up. With, and so it just reminded me of that. And like, I don't remember some of those details. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, why would you? Your life doesn't depend on it. <laughs> News comes in that they have permission to film in the bazaar, mm-hmm. which is a heavily populated part of town. Tony thinks it might be a trick to like get them to expose themselves to public scrutiny. Yeah. Well, and it's also like, calls up Jack and there's a scene where he like takes a phone scrambler out of I think like a radio and connects yeah. it to the phone which I liked mm-hmm. they agree that yeah they called his bluff basically and so out of the guest house visitors Joe who's Kathy's husband is the one who's like very against it and doesn't trust Tony really yeah they or, have a strong and negative uh, reaction to this whole situation during this whole time Tony gives his name as what Kevin Harkness or something to that effect Right. But he convinces them to trust him by telling them his real name and his background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a scene as there is some of them are getting ready. The other couple whose names I forget. Right. Um, there's the woman with the glasses and the guy with the losing his hair. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Mark and Cora. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Legend of Cora. <laughs> So there's a scene where they're getting ready and they have this great line of don't be recognizable, but look exactly like your passport photo. Mm-hmm. It's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Very typical spy work where one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. But eventually they get together and they get into this 70s van mm-hmm. that had been procured earlier. They start driving and they drive right up to this rally, nationalist anti-American rally, and then just mm-hmm. sit there until they get surrounded. Well, I mean, there's not really much you can do at that point. So they drove and they saw that there's a rally. And as they're about to you know, back up, they see all these people behind them as well starting to approach them. Yeah, maybe so not anything to do. Yeah. yeah. So the plan is they just drive right through. Not very slowly. Not, yes. not, not, not fast so they could hurt anyone, but just drive so that they make their way through. So it's a very intense scene of people, people like banging on the windows. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say the Iranians don't come off too well in this movie, but in fairness, the people at these rallies are going to be like the super hardcore ones, not your average person. But yeah, so they finally get through there. Pretty much once they get out of there, mm-hmm. Tony quizzes them on their cover identities. It's a great time to do it because they just are really rattled. <laughs> exactly. So if you were able to do that when you're rattled like that, then you've got your cover identity down. Yeah. So they, they meet... Reza. He works for the Ministry of Culture, and mm-hmm. there's this line where he asks if it's going to be a foreign bride film. Yeah, what was like up with that? Is that just because that's the other films that they film there? So it's like a film where a foreigner comes to the country and gets married, and there's differences, and then they solve those differences and laugh. And right. he looks very disappointed when they said, no, it's not, not that kind of film. So maybe it's just his favorite type of film. <laughs> Or I also wonder if it's a kind of story that the Iranian government would approve of, because it's very true. 
would be that, yeah. So they walk through the bazaar, and it looks really nice, all this cool stuff to buy. It's also very crowded. Yeah, it is very crowded. There's a joke where Mike... <laughs> Is his uh, name Mike or is that his cover? His cover name is Mike. That's that's uh, Shots or Henry Lee Shots. Okay, so he's looking through a viewfinder the wrong way. Very, very funny. <laughs> but then they get into a confrontation with a shopkeeper. Yeah, because Kathy, who's acting as a production designer, took a photo of his shop without permission. And yeah. this causes this whole confrontation. But I think he just engineered it. Yes, yeah, he basically he wanted because they look white. So he assumes they're Americans and he mm -hmm. gets in this whole thing about how his son was killed by an American gun. And right. So it's a re another really good intense confrontation with yeah. a crowd. And the only thing worse than being in a situation where a bunch of people are yelling at you is if they're yelling at you and you can't understand what they're saying, mm. which is what happens here. As the crowd gets more and more riled up, the aide from the Ministry of Culture says, you know, I, I would suggest that we end our visit. And so they leave. As this is going on, Sahar is confronted by the military at yeah. the embassy or the residence, mm -hmm. and they start asking her questions about these guests of the ambassador. How long have they been here? And she lies to them and says they've only been there for two days, rather than like seventy days at this point. Right, good move, thanks to her. And yeah. then back at home, Ted Kennedy is trying to primary All right. her, which this reminded me of Thirteen Days. Because in addition Kennedy's to all this, yeah, well, not only because he's a Kennedy, but because in addition to all this foreign policy stuff, you also have the election politics at your back door. But yeah, so this is when uh, the White House chief of staff finds out about what they refer to as the Hollywood option. Mm -hmm. And he's pissed. So but back at the uh, residence, Tony is testing all their covers. Some things I did not know, like the Canadians do not pronounce the second T in Toronto. They Toronto. just say Toronto. Toronto. I can see that. It's like kind of Midwestern speak a little yeah, bit. Makes sense. And, uh, and of course, this was another scene from Red Sea Diving Resort. They do it there too. Uh, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen that. So <laughs> <laughs> Mendez gets a call. He says, we're scrapping the mission at this incredibly late hour because we're going to go with a military option. The Joint Chiefs are planning a military rescue. Right. And they only have to wait a few days longer, they said, so that until they get them out. If they get them out. Are you familiar with the story, by the way, of the failed oh. attempt to rescue the Iranian hostages? So Carter approved this plan to use helicopters and Delta Force, like in the movie, to go in and rescue them. And they went in to a staging area in the desert, and the desert sand got into the helicopters and jammed them, and they didn't work. Oh. And it was a, a failure, embarrassment, even worse than the embarrassment the Carter administration was already going through with this whole hostage situation, so it made the situation worse, thus wow. contributing to his not being reelected. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. That is fascinating. Yeah. Jack says that if Americans are being dragged out of the Canadian ambassador's residence, it's world outrage. If Americans are killed because they're playing make-believe film crew, then it looks terrible. It looked, It's a laughing stock. Yeah, it's a little bit of a cold-blooded way to look at it, though. Because either way, the Americans are dead. Mm -hmm. That's but all the, about the optics. Yeah. So meanwhile, the six are like, we're leaving tomorrow, so it's party time. They start drinking. Yeah, they say it's scorched earth policy with the alcohol. Mm -hmm. They play some Led Zeppelin on the record player. Tony also steals a bottle of alcohol. Oh, I didn't notice that he stole a bottle of alcohol. Yeah. That's funny. And the ambassador, so who, who also knows that they, the plan has been called off, 
tell them it's better that we don't tell them now because they'll just get agitated. So it's best if you just don't show up tomorrow. So it's uh, lies within lies around here. It's almost like it's a spy movie. <laughs> so Tony's back at his hotel room, drinking alone. And like there's a nice contrast between him drinking alone and the visitors getting drunk in the residence and laughing with each other. Right. Back in Hollywood, Lester and Chambers are told to pack up the office. They decide, oh, yeah, let's go for a drink first before we pack up everything. It's the next day, and Kathy notices that you know he's late, and they're getting worried. So yeah, Tony decides, I'm going to do it anyways. He calls Jack, tells him to take him through, but doesn't. One little problem. <laughs> yeah. They don't have tickets. They need Carter's permission to get tickets. And I'm like, how is Tony oh, not aware of that? Of the tickets. So I think that's why he called Jack, so that he can make sure that anything and everything is ready for him to go through. Otherwise, they're going to call it at the airport. It's a heck of a gamble, though. Well, yeah, and I mean, there's not no way that they could tell him to stop because at that point, you know, the Canadians are leaving. They're cutting their communication. So unless they do that, they're going to get caught. So you either do it or we're all going to die. Yeah, there's a part in some comic. I don't remember what it is, but someone's like, it's a million to one shot, but it's our only option. And someone else is like, I don't want to hear that. So Tony arrives at the residence. We find out that Har is on a bus out of the area. And the ambassador and his wife will be on a train in 30 minutes. And as this is going on, Jack is running around trying to get the tickets confirmed. They can't find the White House chief of staff. So yep. they get they have this plan. All right, where do his kids go to school? I'm mm-hmm. going to pretend to be their kid's school to get me through the lines. Finally gets them through. Brian Cranston has a bunch of really good lines here. A lot of F-bombs. But we've already done one, so we might as well do more. He says, do your fucking job. He says, we're a fucking spy agency, so find him. That's right. I like that one. They're all really good. As they're on their way to the airport, Tony tells them the plan, how there's different checkpoints. So you have the one checkpoint where they're going to check for the white copy of your slip, your customs form. Right. And this part was crazy. This part was ridiculous. But they're not there yet. He's just telling them all the different steps. It's like that thing that they do in spy movies where they tell them a plan and then we see how it actually happens. No, I know, I know. But I'm saying his plan is oh. be like, oh, I guess you guys lost the white slips. It's like, I'm, what? This is, it's, it's, it's a third world country. And also this is a plan that has been implemented very recently. So of course there'll be mistakes. Yeah, but that was something I was wondering as soon as they brought the white slips up. I was like, how are they going to get around this? Because although it's a not very good security system by today's standards, mm-hmm. you know that they're going to check for the white slips and how are you going to get it to? Well, they said they don't always check. They said if they check. Oh, that's true. Fair enough. Yeah. And then after that, they'll also have their passports checked and then they might have additional security screening. Right. So you got to be ready for the questions and so yeah. on. Mm-hmm. They get to the ticket counter. Tony finds out the tickets haven't been confirmed. Like very calmly asked, could you, you mind checking again? And what movie is it? What fictional movie do they do right. this? Come on, it's your favorite movie. They did Mission Impossible. When? Right? Isn't isn't there a part where Tom Cruise is like does a thumbprint or something and they're like, We don't have you on the list? And he's like, check again, and they're like, tick, 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 tick. Well, yes and no. They do that in uh, Ghost Protocol. It's more, but it's more of a demanding thing. It's not just a, you do mind checking again. <laughs> okay. I knew it was one of those fictional movies where Oh, no, suddenly it's there. <laughs> I should do that for both the first Mission Impossible and Ghost Protocol. There we go. Fingerprints. Um, but yeah, so just down to the last minute, they get a telegraph from the White House saying 
they, they can approve the tickets, and so they approve the tickets, and then Tony has the ticket agent check again, and they're magically there. Right. And then they get to the checkpoint, and they can't find the white customs copies. They talk to Bob, who's in the front of their group, and say, you know, we're all together. And they ask him, you know, what are you, what are you here for? Is that we're film shoot here? I have a copy of a letter from the uh, Ministry of Culture. And so once they see this, oh, it looks official. All right, come on through. Yeah. <laughs> Just act like you've been there before. That's life advice, unless it's a courtroom. <laughs> That's my little addition to it. And then they go to the passport checks by the military, and each one of them gets pulled aside for additional screening. Right. And they get interrogated by the military, who's speaking to them in Farsi, and just talk, and like, seemingly no one speaks Farsi, except Joe starts speaking to them in Farsi. Well, I didn't think that was a surprise. He said he spoke Farsi earlier. And there's even a part where he's like, an American gun killed his cousin or whatever. I think Joe was the one who said that. Yeah. Yeah. But he still really steps up because everyone else was just kind of staring and didn't know what to do. Yeah. So he does. He actually gets all the storyboards out and tells mm-hmm. them the whole story of the film. The story of the film is like the story of the Iranian Revolution. Mm-hmm. I was right? wondering, like, is that actually the story of the film or did he just make that up so it seems more favorable to them? That's a good point. I mean, we don't know just from what little we saw. Mm-hmm. Like what we saw in that president told us effectively nothing. <laughs> and also, did they like... If that was the real story, is he the alone who read the script? Or do you think everyone else actually read the script? Yeah, they probably had plenty of time with nothing to do. So you might as well read the script. Also, it would be part of their cover, right? If someone asked them, what's your movie about? And you don't know. Yeah, so I would bad. hope that they'd read this. Especially this. Like, that's the other thing that got me is like, in this moment, Cora is supposed to be the film writer, screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And she's like frozen, like. So I'm like, come on. You, well, but maybe she doesn't speak first. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But while this is going on... The IRGC, or they don't mm-hmm. say who they are, but some Iranian military police people mm-hmm. have put together their pictures mm-hmm. with the carpet weavers. They figured it out, and they're after them. They, like, break into their house, and they're basically on the warpath. Yeah. So at back at the airport, Joe seems to have convinced them, uh, but he, if, in English, the lead soldier says, you don't go until we verify. So mm-hmm. they give them the, the card for Studio 6, First, the CIA is calling CO6 to try to tell them, don't shut down. We need you to be there in case they try to verify. The phone's ringing and no one's answering because Lester and Chambers are stopped from getting to their production office because there's filming going on on, on the back lot. And I love this. I don't know whether it was supposed <laughs> to be a joke or not. I think it was where it's just two guys swinging and they're obviously not, or it's just one guy swinging at another one, mm-hmm. not hitting him. But just, it looks like he's punched, pretends to punch him like 20 times. He just keeps doing it. <laughs> well, I mean, so here's the thing about stunt fighting, because I've, I've, I've done some stunt fighting in the past. Mm-hmm. And because your camera, unless you're doing 3D filming, obviously, the camera is flat. Even if, as long as the, it's positioned the right way, even if you miss them by a country mile, if you have the re- right reaction, as long as it looks okay in the shot, it'll f- look fine. But it needs timing, and it needs, like, the right angle. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was funny that there's like punch, 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 punch while they're like sitting there talking to each other. (laughs) Lester and Chambers are sick of waiting, so they decide, all right, we're just going to walk through. (laughs) He even tells the assistant. He says, call my agent if you don't like it. We're going to be in your movie. He says, sorry, dude, I'm going to be in the movie. Call my agent. Yeah. And then while the guard is calling them, he's looking at a newspaper and he comes across an ad. 
for Argo right next to a newspaper article about the press release happening. Yeah. So hey, that that paid off. Mm -hmm. So at the last ring, John Goodman picks up the phone. He sounds out of breath. They ask, "Is Kevin Hawkins there?" He says, "No, he's out of the country on a location scout." Mm -hmm. Hangs up very rudely, but his story checks out, and they let them leave. So, and they let them leave just as the doors had closed for the flight, but they still let them get on board. They actually, like, they're about to pa try to pack up all the stuff, but if, when it says, oh, you keep storyboards, they're a gift. Yes. So they get out of the airport, they get on a van, but then the van has trouble starting. Like, it's like a horror movie. Uh, so you know what this whole part was like? is like what? the Dark Knight. Yeah? So the first time you watch Dark Knight, obviously it's amazing. It's so tense. Uh -huh. You don't know what's going to happen. But then when you watch it a second time, you're just sort of like, all right, let's, let's go. Let's move along here. We know what's going to happen. That's sort of what I felt here. I don't know. Actually, I did not feel that. And I've seen this movie within the last year recently. So even though I'd seen it relatively recently, I, that was still tension for me, though. Oh, good. Yeah. Glad it worked for you. But yeah, so the shuttle stalled, and then they get, finally get it going. And at this point, the military at the airport gets a call about they've realized who the guest house people are. But rather than call you know, down to the gate, they have to have a guy run to the gate to tell them. It doesn't make much sense, but whatever. So the Iranians get in police cars, military cars, and they start chasing the plane down the runway. Yep. And this and is the best part of the movie, but it's ridiculous because it's like a Fast and Furious 6 runway. Uh -huh. They also storm up into the control tower. As the plane's taking off, the jeep and the police cars are driving right alongside it, and then they, the plane takes off, there's wheels up. I was wondering, what were the Iranians' plan? Like, what were they thinking the was going to happen? But how? Were they going to, like, shoot the tires out? Because it looked like he was pointing his gun at the front tires. He was thinking about it. <laughs> Maybe he's seen too many Hollywood movies. Maybe. I think they were, if they could get the plane to stop somehow, maybe wave down the pilots or something, then they mm -hmm. would have but, but they but don't. They don't. And it seems like very, like, how big is Iranian airspace? Because it seems like not too long after they take off, they clear Iranian airspace. Well, with cuts in movies, it was sort of like Parmani, where they cut a scene, and it could be six months later for all anyone knows. Uh, right. Iran is a big country, and Tehran's right in the middle of it. So okay. they probably were fine for quite a while. All right, all right. But yeah, so once they clear Iranian airspace, all the six are celebrating, they're hugging each other. It looked like Henry Lee Schatz kissed Cora, who's married to someone else. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I was like, what, did you just kiss the, one of the married women? I think Joe and Tony have like a bro handshake. Oh yeah, I was like, is he? He goes up to him. And I was like, is he gonna apologize? No, just very silently gives him his hand, and shakes his hand. Bros. <laughs> and then meanwhile, Shahar is crossing the border into Iraq. Oh, which is a little bit of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Yeah. <laughs> While they're on their way home, I guess mm -hmm. Brian Cranston says Canada is the one who needs to take the credit here because otherwise they could retaliate against our hostages. Yep. He so says, thank thanks Canada. to Canada. Yeah. After they get home, the Secretary of State has a ceremony honoring them. And there's a newscast from Iran saying that, you know, Canada will pay for violating our sovereignty. Curse you, He-Man. You haven't heard the last of Skeletor. What's what these things always remind uh, me of? And then Tony, back at CIA headquarters, is turning in all the relevant materials to the archives. But he happens to keep one storyboard. Nice. As he's exiting Langley, he runs into Jack, who tells him that he's going to get the Intelligence Star. 
and there's gonna be a ceremony next week and he's like you know if you push it to two weeks my son can come and he can see it and he's uh, but jack tells him because the op was classified you can't come no one will know he doesn't even keep the medal i don't get it i know they do do this in movies but why can it be like you did a great job on something we can't talk about here's your medal what's so hard about that because then what they have this medal and they'll have to explain why they have the medal just don't show it to people yeah, they don't trust people to do that. <laughs> just be like, I did a great job at my work. And then people will stop listening and be like, boring, whatever. Not when it says CIA on it. Well, don't have it say CIA on it. I don't, I don't want to tell them how to run their railroad. Intelligence star. Okay, fair enough. So there's a couple of good dialogue here where Brian Cranston says, if you wanted applause, you should join the circus. <laughs> to which Tony says, I thought we did. And then <laughs> I would have had Brian Cranston say, those are the other guys. <laughs> ah. Uh-huh. Which, I don't, did we ever talk about that in in our uh, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, how MI6 is referred to as the circus in the Le Carre universe? I think we may have mentioned it, yeah. Okay, yeah. But for those of you who don't know, yes, that's what I was referring to. He says hmm. some other good dialogue. Oh, Brian says, Carter says you're a great American, and Mendez says a great American what? <laughs> it's like, why are you being difficult, dude? Enjoy your moment. Mm. He goes home and he patches things up with Piper from Orange is the New Black. Is that who that is? Yeah. Oh. Also, we had uh, Chambers packing up the Studio 6 office. Someone passed, comes by and says, what happened to your picture? It's in turned around. <laughs> Just as it was. And then we get to see some more Kenner Star Wars toys and a, yes. spot, and a Mr. Spock. And they do post-op information about what happens after. Yeah, so the hostages didn't get released until January 1981. They were in captivity for 444 days. And so it's a good thing that Tony went ahead. Otherwise, they would have been stuck there for a long time. And who knows where they would have ended up because the Canadians had to leave. Right. And the story of how the rest of them got out is a story for another time. But it's pretty wild. Yeah. Oh? Yeah, it's Missiles for Hostages, Ronald Reagan. Familiar with that? Oh, he basically made a deal with the Iranians right. to like, if I get elected, I'll just give you what you want for the hostages. So it was like back dealing. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yep. So what else we have is that all of the house guests returned to the foreign service afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that Tony finally got his star returned to him in 1997 when President Clinton declassified the mission. Don't they say something about John Chambers too? Um, yes. I don't remember what they said about him. Um, he lived happily but- ever after. Well, that he and Tony remained friends until Chambers died in like 2000 something. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then Tony lives in rural Maryland. Yes, although he has in the past few years passed. Okay, so that is it for Argo. Now it's time for Spy Fact versus Fiction. Do you have any before I go? Well, I know what I know, just offhand knowledge of that. Well, first of all, that that's the entire last scene with like the cars chasing the plane. I know that's all fictional. Yeah, that's true. The best parts of the movie kind of are fictional. And I've got one thing, and it's about the whole thing with his wife. That right. is all fictional from what I've learned. And also, so Tony was married twice. His first wife was not Christine as in the film, but I believe like Karen. Hold on, I had that up somewhere. I mean, well, his first mm-hmm. wife died, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Hold on. So yeah, his first wife was Karen, who died yeah, in 86. He later married Jonah Mendez, who was formerly the uh, chief of disguise at the CIA and who mm-hmm. still does a lot of programs with the Spy Museum and has some really great stories. Yep. 
if you just search for her name under podcast, I'm sure you'll find a lot of interviews because oh, yeah. I know she's done a lot. So here's what I have. So I didn't read the book of Argo. You can find it. It's because this movie was so well known because of all of its best picture and Oscar nominees that a lot of was written about what's true and what's false. So I used just one of those articles, How Accurate is Argo by David Hagland, writing at Slate. And I also read the original Argo article by Tony Mendez that eventually became his book. Okay. The big controversy at the time was how involved the Canadians were. The movie, Mm. most people felt, didn't give the Canadians enough credit, even though they got tons of credit at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's true the Americans were housed by Ken Taylor, but also a Canadian embassy employee named John Sheardown. Okay. It was Taylor who cabled Washington to start the plan. Canadians scouted the airport. They sent people in and out of Iran to establish random patterns. They got the copy of the entry and exit visas, and they even bought the airline tickets. So the whole scene where they need to confirm the airline tickets didn't Uh happen. Uh They even coached the six in sounding Canadian. (laughs) I was wondering about it because there's only one joke about... You know, mm-hmm. accents are saying A all the time, but everything else is just like, all right, just regular American accents. But it must be pretty similar. Generally, yeah, usually it depends on the region. Mm-hmm. When I'm traveling, I definitely pick up on accents. Like, I will start to adopt them if I've mm-hmm. been long enough. Like, when I've gone to Canada, I get a bit of that Canadian accent sometimes. That's funny. Yeah. It's even worse if I go to, like, when I was in space camp, which is in, like, Alabama. I came back with a Southern twang. (laughs) Yeah, it's easy to pick up because it's so strong there. (laughs) Okay, so Taylor got all this credit, so I don't know what he's complaining about. I'm just kidding. So like like you said, Mendez got along with his family. His wife drove him to the airport Mm. when he left. Alan Arkin's character didn't exist. Chambers brought in another makeup man named Robert Seidel to help Mm. them out. January 1980 Hollywood Reporter story is titled, Two Makeup Artists Turn to Producing with Sci-Fi Argo. Hmm. Similarly, Chambers came up with the idea to use an existing screenplay, and it Mm -hmm. wasn't called Argo, the screenplay Mm -hmm. they used. It was called Lord of Light, after (laughs) a sci-fi novel. And the joke came first. It's not clear who came up with the joke, the Argo Fuck Yourself joke. So that was real. The joke was real, yes. That's great. So the article says that Mendez came up with it, but Mendez says that Chambers came up with it. But regardless, that was where the name Argo came from. All right. Mendez said in his article that Hollywood is actually a great place to create and dismantle a major cover story overnight because the mafia and many shady foreign investors were notorious for backing productions. Uh, So maybe it's not as far-fetched as it looks. And then after the mission was over, the studio remained in operation for a few weeks to shut down. And during that time, they received 26 scripts and one from Steven Spielberg. What? Do we know which script from Spielberg? I do not. They did not say which one. Oh, I wonder. Wait. 80, 1980. What could that be? Well, E.T. had happened. Yeah? All right. Because they mention it, I think. Okay. He must have been just getting started, I feel. 81. Indiana weird. Jones? Indiana Jones? That'd be cool. No, maybe. But he didn't write that. Well, he could have brought the script uh, to them and okay. said, I'm interested in making this. True, true. All right. So the six escapees disguised themselves to look more Hollywood and had fun doing it, like with crazy hats and like over the top. <laughs> like they mentioned in the movie, they're like, Hollywood types are so flamboyant. That doesn't work as a cover. But yeah, <laughs> one of them borrowed an overcoat from Mendez and then didn't return it. So he got chewed out 
when he had to return all of his material. Uh. So that was pretty funny. So the airport escape, as we said, was not true. Mm-hmm. The Canadians got the tickets ahead of time. Mendez himself said it was, quote, smooth as silk. The only problem was the flight was delayed an hour due to mechanical problems. Uh, so that stressed them out, but it was mm-hmm. all good. And then finally, the carpet weavers piecing together the papers are real. Oh, they did okay. do that, but they uh, didn't make the connection until like six months later. Uh, okay. Before the movie, before any of this came out, did you know about this? No. Okay. I before did. And I'm trying to remember away. where I read, it about, mm-hmm. read about it. I think it was from like a book from the Spy Museum, probably like one of my earliest trips to DC and I went by the spy museum and got a copy. I think it's like one of their like spy museum handbooks or something. They talk about this. And so when this came out, I was like, Oh wait, I've heard about this, but that's only cause I'm me. Right. According to the, one of the articles, there was a book and movie called the Canadian caper. Hmm, yes. That's what I mean about giving Canada the credit, but mm-hmm. that's not quite as, that's not a very, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's, it makes it sound like it's uh like they're doing an Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. Uh, yeah. This is a little more serious. I wouldn't call it a caper. It's a little more serious than that. All right. So shall we get into favorite quotes? Sure. All right. I was a little disappointed that John Goodman and Alan Arkin were in more of the movie because they had all the best lines. Mm-hmm. So my favorite quote was from Alan Arkin, and it was in the, all the trailers. So I apologize if you remember <laughs> the trailers. But he says, if I'm making a fake movie, it's going to be a fake hit. <laughs> I like that one. And my quote uh, is from John Chambers. It says, so you want to come to Hollywood, act like a big shot without actually doing anything? You'll fit right in. Yet another example of a Hollywood <laughs> movie bashing Hollywood, but in a fun way. Yeah. And certainly as Mendez was implying with these foreign investors that there's a lot of people who come to Hollywood and act like big shots and throw mm-hmm. money around thinking they're going to be stars. Yeah. All right. So that is it for our quotes. And now it is time for our ratings. As always, we rate our movies on a scale of one to 10 martinis, one being a terrible movie and 10 being the greatest movie ever. And how would you rate Argo? All right, you want to go first or should I go? I can go first. Okay. So this movie is difficult to rate. <laughs> All right. Because like The Dark Knight, the first time you watch it, it's like amazing. <laughs> the tension's really good. The plot moves along and so on. But mm-hmm. this is really a case of ignorance is bliss. Because the more I learned about it, and I learned uh, that almost all the good stuff in it isn't true, mm-hmm. going back and watching it again, it's just so much less enjoyable. So it's mm-hmm. really hard to say. So I would say if this is your first time watching it and you know nothing about it, it's like a 9 out of 10 movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's just that engaging. I can see why it won Best Picture. But, but now that I know so much and that it's not true it's harder to take it seriously so i would give it more like a five out of ten Ooh, it's, sort of it's sort of average i know the fact that it's not true really hurts it remember five out of ten is not a, a bad rating it's a it's a well-made movie mm-hmm. it's just not true i wouldn't go as far as the nine out of ten that you said that if you were first time viewer but i'm gonna give it an eight because so this takes a bunch of different boxes for me it has the spy angle, it has the Hollywood angle, which I enjoy movies about Hollywood. And it's also got a bit of the sci-fi angle too, because they're making a sci-fi movie. I like that it's a realistic take on what spies actually do, or exfiltration would be like. And that's, even though it's based on a real story, I'm just taking it of it just as a story. And it's got the tension for me, unlike you, uh, the tension lived up to it for, for me, 
even the like fifth time around, which I think this is probably going to be. So it's still there and it still worked for me. And I, yeah, I thought it was really well acted, well written, and I like the spy stuff in it. So you can see why it won so many awards. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank you for joining us. You can find us on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Christian. And I'm Zach. And we are The Spy Fi Guys, signing off. Thank you for listening to The Spy Fi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.